Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part two of the story of Commonweal, with Commonweal co-founder and president Michael Lerner and Waz Thomas, key staff member and co-founder of the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. Waz Thomas, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Fun to be here. Would you start us with a meditation? Sure. So, uh, wherever you are, however you are, just sort of, uh, if you're comfortable closing your eyes. <laughs> if not, you can have them gently open. And being in this setting, I bet that most of you are familiar with meditation or have your own practice. Always good to start by just checking into the body, being aware of any sensations, feelings, awarenesses. And then consciously, with awareness, just relaxing and softening the body. Letting go of any holding, tension, Relax your belly. Soften the face. And finding your breath. Not trying to breathe in any particular way. Just paying attention to in-breath. Paying attention to out-breath. mind will naturally wander just whenever you're aware of wandering mind without criticism without judgment back to the breath back to the breath so one ohm will take us into a deeper meditation taking a gentle inhalation Shanti, peace. Thank you, Waz. Welcome. When did you come to Commonweal, Waz? If my memory serves me, I think it was the end of May 1984. That's when I moved to Bolinas. I'd been to Commonwealth several times before that. Mm-hmm. May 1984. Right. Okay. And um, what was Commonwealth like when you 
arrived here. <laughs> oh, sort of like it is now. <laughs> Strange and mysterious. Um, so in many ways, a very different place. When I arrived here, there were three people on staff. You, David Parker, who was the money and grants man, and a receptionist, a local woman named Lila Liza Phillips. Phillips. Yeah. Right, and we were sort of <laughs> bouncing around this big building. And uh, I lived in the building, so actually I was inhabiting Orrin's current office, which at that time was two offices that had a wall down the center with an interior door. Um, None of the programs that we are currently doing were even thought of except the work with juvenile justice, I believe. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you came right after the great collapse of Commonweal. Commonweal started in 76. Yeah. And um, we built it up um, to a very considerable degree. We had... 45 or so, 50 people on staff, uh, 40 of whom were on CETA salary lines, Comprehensive Employment Training Act salary lines. And we had significant grants. And then uh, in 1982, um, the CETA contracts ended and our principal funder decided not to renew their funding and so most of our support disappeared, and I had to lay off virtually everybody, including myself. Um, and um, it hung by a thread. Uh, and then the phone rang one day, and it was the MacArthur Foundation saying I'd won a MacArthur Prize Fellowship, and the people who uh, had thought this was a lost cause, took another look at us, and uh, began to support us again. So right. what I'm trying to figure out is, did I already have the MacArthur Fellowship when you came? Uh, you had received the uh, fellowship before I came. Yeah, I was okay. living at the Integral Yoga Institute. Right. In fact, that's the story of how we met, which we'll probably right. get to telling at yeah, some right. point. Yeah. Uh, so I think that you had... You had definitely received the, the uh, grant before I came here because when you received it and then some months later when you suggested that I come okay. up here, it was like, huh? Mm -hmm. This MacArthur fellow is wanting me to come somewhere? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How did we meet? My memory is that you showed up in one of my yoga classes. That's probably right. At yeah. the Antigua Yoga Institute. That's where right. We were living. Yeah. I lived there from 1981 to 84. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, I started teaching probably in my last year there. And then Michael showed up. Mm -hmm. And that led to the inner astronauts work. But before that, you and I did an advanced yoga teacher training here at Commonweal. And I'm wondering whether we didn't actually meet in the advanced yoga teacher training. Quite possibly. Because um, after my wife, Charlotte, after the collapse of Commonweal, right. uh, and after my dog died, my father developed cancer, my marriage fell apart, and the funding for Commonweal fell apart, which was 1982, which was not 
a wonderful year. Um, uh, then Charlotte and I got married, and within six months of us getting married, the MacArthur Foundation called. So Charlotte and I were married, and then right after our marriage, she took off for London to do a film about Leo Zillard, and I went east to do... Um, the yoga te- month-long yoga teacher training uh, at the Satchidananda Ashram, which was then in Connecticut. Right. And uh, then I came back and decided to do an advanced yoga teacher training out here, which you participated in. Right. Right. So, so it, that happened before you came out to live here. And that happened before the inner astronauts? And that happened before okay. the inner astronauts. Yeah, much program. better memory yeah, of it than yeah, do. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why we're here together yes. to figure these things yes, out. Yes. <laughs> so um, the inner astronauts, um, that was um, one of our first residential projects. But that came after the retreats we did for people with systemic lupus disease. Were you here for those? No. Okay. So the retreats that were... Yanni, were you there for the... Okay. So the retreats for uh, systemic lupus disease were our first residential retreats, and that happened um, after I met Dean Ornish and after these uh, this early experience with yoga... Um, and we did a year, uh, we did two retreats for people with systemic lupus disease, which were the models that ultimately became the Cancer Help Program. In other words, the first uh, two retreats, Dean Ornish, the cardiologist, who I still think deserves a Nobel Prize for his work demonstrating that you can reverse coronary artery disease with a yoga-based program, And he suggested that we do the systemic lupus retreats because he thought it would be an interesting model because you could actually track changes in the lupus activity. And those were extraordinary. And we did those with uh, Swami Nishtalananda Ma and Virginia Veach as two of the co-leaders. And um, so that was before you came. Right. Then after you came, uh, we did the uh, inner astronauts. But before we get there, there's an actor in this drama that we should bring into the picture, which is Swami Satchidananda, who was the founder of the Integral Yoga Institutes and um, uh, where you uh, lived and worked. And, um, and Satchidananda and Integral Yoga, I really think, saved my life. Um, after, uh, you know, this huge collapse of Commonweal, it's just hanging by a thread, and um, and Charlotte and I got married, and I went east to do the Integral Yoga teacher training. And I honestly believed that Integral Yoga teacher training saved my life because it um, opened me up to a way of experiencing and thinking about the world that um, has never left me. And um, uh, it obviously transformed Dean Ornish's life, um, transformed the lives of many people um, 
who've worked with Commonweal over the years who were involved with Integral Yoga, Yanni Chapman, Jennifer Stoll, uh, many other people uh, who've, uh, who've uh, uh, been involved. What was the impact of Integral Yoga and Satchitananda for you? Well, I wouldn't say that my relationship with yoga or Satchitananda transformed my life. Right. Um, it sort of confirmed it. Mm-hmm. 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 In what way? Uh, I was already sort of in the world in that way. And integral mm-hmm. uh, yoga or yoga or Eastern philosophy, spirituality sort of uh, dovetail with the way I was already seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was more interesting just coming upon a system that sort of had a worldview anywhere close to what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. So, and I just saw Satchitananda as a cool person. I never mm-hmm. got any energy or saw him as any superman. I just mm-hmm. thought he was a interesting person. He was very funny. He had a, a, a great way of presenting his teachings. Uh, I had the opportunity to be around him a couple of times, uh, but uh, I talk about that a lot recently because it took me 30 years sort of to realize that yoga had not transformed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on the one hand, you want to sort of feel a little guilty about that, but they're not, not too guilty because uh, it's just fine the way that it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you, uh, this is a hard question, but can you describe that way of seeing the world that you had before you even got to integral yoga that integral yoga confirmed for you? How would you describe that way of seeing the world? I think that's pretty impossible to uh, talk about. That'd be a little more specific. I mean, how are we? How am I in the world? It's hard to say mm-hmm. because it would. I, it's how I respond to all the things that come to me. So some attributes of my life that has sort of been consistent. That was also consistent with the teachings of yoga. Oh, let's see. Let's jump into the thing about attachments. Mm-hmm. You know, teachings in yoga and Buddhism, that attachments cause suffering. Mm. Uh, And I've never been very attached in life, so I've never suffered that much. Mm. So it wasn't that yoga brought that to my life. It was like, oh, well, that's sort of uh, what other people believe too. Mm. But if you go through life unattached, it's fine for me, but it seems to be difficult for some other people mm-hmm. because most people live lives of attachment. Mm-hmm. So, What other attributes other than non-attachment would you um, say? I don't worry control. about things very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see things, and I also sort of see things more uh, neutral and just phenomena instead of all these judgments about good and bad. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's sort of consistent with some teachings of yoga and Eastern philosophy. Um, 
and talk, this is the first time I've talked about this in such a large group, so it sounds kind of pompous in some ways because people are sort of, I see people thinking, he can't really be living like that, but I do. That's one of the reasons I decided to do the talk was to just sort of put that out there. Some people know pieces of this because a lot of you have been hanging around for a while and heard me say similar things, so. Well, you talked about uh, non-attachment. Oh, sure. Okay, non-attachment, uh, non-judgment, kindness. Uh, yeah. All of my life, I thought I was here to be uh, kind and peaceful. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not something that I came upon in my adult life. It was sort of something I always wanted to do and that mm-hmm. people have noticed about me mm-hmm. since uh, I was very young. You know, like, oh, don't you ever get upset? Don't you ever get mad? Mm-hmm. I said, oh, a little bit, but not like I saw so much of the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, Where were you born? Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So uh, born there to Rose and Joseph in 1943. Mm-hmm. In 1946, we took the Underground Railroad north to a better life. Uh, most of the tribe landed in Detroit or Cleveland. My part of the tribe landed in Cleveland, mm-hmm. where I stayed until 1977. Mm-hmm. They moved to San Francisco for five years and then to Bolinas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what was it like growing up in Cleveland? What I remember about it? <laughs> uh, large chunks of my past have seemed to have fallen away. That mm-hmm. could be for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, What was it like growing up in Cleveland? I suspect it was much like growing up anywhere. Uh, there were good times and bad times. Uh, I was sort of, a, again, as a child, uh, I was very uh, self-contained. I liked spending much more time by myself than with other people because other people were always so emotional. And that was just like, I didn't understand it back then. Yeah. If I remember correctly, you had a brother who died. That's correct, but that was when I was an adult. Okay. My brother died when I was uh, in my early 20s. Right. So I'm a one of five children. I have uh, had an older brother, an older sister who's two years older than me and still living, and sisters 15 and 11 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So I was the baby for right. 11 years. Right. And uh, you went to school there and ended up running a, a Pre, a pre-kindergarten uh, center or a preschool center of some kind, is that right? Well, out of college, I taught art in an elementary school for one semester, mm-hmm. and then that was during the Johnson administration, remember that, the Johnson mm-hmm. War on Poverty. So I was involved with a series of programs called Parent and Child Centers. Mm-hmm. And so I basically spent uh, eight years teaching basically young black women how to raise their children, mm-hmm. <coughs> being such an expert on it. Having, <laughs> having been raised as a black child, I guess, that gave me my credentials. Uh, so, so I did that for a while, and uh, I left there, got my master's in early childhood development. Then I was the director of a uh, nursery school for uh, two years before... Mm-hmm. Uh, moving west. Why did you move west? Um, uh, 
that was a time that I was, uh, you know, with New Age consciousness and the hippies and everything, and that that energy was in the world. And so I started reading uh, Ram Dass books and other Eastern philosophy. And there was this big thing about trusting the universe. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. And at that time, that was when I was director of the nursery school. I had a supervisor that I really didn't like very much. And so I said I was going to quit my job mm -hmm. and trust the universe. And then a friend of mine and I hopped in my car and drove around the country for four months. Came into the Bay Area in the middle of that trip. Took us about a month and a half to get back to Cleveland. The day I got back to Cleveland, there was this energy, this presence, this voice saying, you're moving to San Francisco. I said, what? And I struggled with that decision for about 24 hours and then decided <laughs> I was moving to San Francisco. It took me about a month to settle up things in Cleveland and uh, I arrived. And um, when did you figure out that you were gay in this whole story? I don't know mm -hmm. when I figured it out. I don't know if I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, was it before you got to San Francisco, presumably? Or? Oh, definitely was before I got to San Francisco. Oh, gosh. I think... Uh, so my early sexual involvements were, or just even bodies and sensuality was with boys and girls. Mm -hmm. And so I think I started specializing after high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mainly because it was easier having sex with boys than it was with girls, because it just got so complicated, you know. Mm -hmm. Boys, you could just do it and it didn't have to be, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> I get that the, the, okay, how I see life. Okay, so being gay for some people is so traumatic. Mm -hmm. This was never really that much of an issue for me. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like, well, that's the way I am. And it, mm -hmm. it, I know a lot of people have issues with it. But that was really their problem. It had nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. This was all about them. Mm -hmm. And that's another way I've gotten through life. Anything anybody says about me, it really has more to say about them mm -hmm. and their projections or understanding the, mm -hmm. about me. And I thought it was just fine mm -hmm. liking men. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't think I was ever really traumatized by mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. You've played a, a really central role in Commonweal's um, trajectory, history. Um, <coughs> Sometimes uh, we have birthdays. We're almost the same age. We have birthdays three days apart. Right. Um, sometimes we say that we're twins separated at birth. You know. Um, Interesting statement. I was thinking about that in the last couple yeah. of days. Yeah. Because like uh, we twins separated at birth and then having such different trajectories. Yeah. I mean. You were born white and relatively privileged. Yeah. And I was born black and relatively poor. Mm -hmm. um, you had a 
I would suspect, sort of Ivy League education. Absolutely. And I went to public schools. Mm-hmm. And then we fell into each other's arms and been together for 32 years. Exactly. I find that quite remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you never liked it when I said this, and I know you still don't like it, but uh, I continue to believe that you kind of, for a very long time, uh, held the spirit heart of Commonweal. That's how I experienced it. And I was like the outside guy who, you know, presented stuff and made the deals and, you know, did the work of building the place. Uh, But you held the heart of the place um, in a way that was very low-key and very completely unostentatious and without any, as you know, you don't even like it when I say it, so that's how much, <laughs> you know, low-key it was. But, but if you asked other people, um, you kind of held the heart of this place for a really long time. And it's still, you know, you... you you keep retiring, you know. I mean, how many times have you retired? I think it's like five. But I haven't talked about that in about six years, so yes. But I, I've been, I was leaving quite a few times. Yeah. But then something else always came up. So, okay, I'll stay until that gets worked out. Right, yeah, exactly. But now I'm just here until I'm not here. Right. <laughs> I've cried wolf too many times. Right. Yeah. So you, you, you keep retiring, but... Even today, uh, you know, there's just an energy about you that um, that people love and that that makes people feel um, safe and comfortable. And, um, you know, one of your other qualities, which is very yogic, is that you treat everybody the same, you know? Mm-hmm. It, like, doesn't matter what somebody's job is or anything else, they all get treated with the same respect and kindness. Mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful thing. Yeah, I think that's it's natural for my nature, but it's also specifically intentional. Yeah. 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 Um, because... On the human level, we're all the same. We, we have different roles, and we wear different costumes, and we do different things. But beneath that is the humanity that I honor and acknowledge, and the rest of the stuff is just sort of mm-hmm. not that important to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And uh, also, I'm trying to counterbalance a lot of the opposite, yeah. that... that uh, People are treated differently because of position or wealth mm-hmm. or celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to offer the balance to that mm-hmm. and treat us sort of all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very beautiful quality. So going back to uh, your coming to Commonweal, and, and when you got here, as you said, there were just Three pe- Actually, I wasn't even on salary. I was right, being living. supported by the yeah, MacArthur right. thing. Uh, but when I laid everybody off, I laid myself off too, and there were only two people on salary, David Parker and, and uh, Lila Phillips at the front desk, the business manager and uh, the receptionist. 
And the place was empty. And so you came in, um, you were the first person to arrive after the Holocaust. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, you built a bedroom in Oren's office and lived in the building, it was yep. a big empty building, right? Yep. That's what it was actually like, you know, while we were struggling to pull it back together. So we rebuilt it together, you know. That's what actually happened. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a big deal in my life, you know, just that. So one of the early things, as we were saying, that we did was this program called the Inner Astronauts. We got a grant to uh, work with uh, a group of seniors. This was after we'd done the group work with systemic lupus, which was the kind of proof of concept that we could do with lupus what Dean Ornish had done with heart disease and using like a yoga retreat-based uh, pro program, he showed you could reverse heart disease and he thought we could demonstrate something important with lupus. And so we did that. Um, but it wasn't a good group to continue to work with because there weren't that many people with systemic lupus disease around. So we thought, well, what about working with the elderly? And um, we did this year-long program uh, where we did two retreats, right. in my memory. Um, and, um, but this was like early. The Pacific House wasn't open. We did it in the two small buildings, both Thien and Kohler. And here. And here. What do you remember about the Inner Astronauts program? You're listening to Michael Lerner and Waz Thomas. Well, going back to the beginning of it, um, when you asked me to do it initially, I'm sure I was probably reserved or even may have said no the first time. I don't remember. Could well be. Because uh, it was like, oh, okay, I've been teaching yoga for like six months, and now this man wants me to go off and teach yoga to seniors. I don't know how to do that. Uh, but you, either you asked me again or I finally said I would do it, which has sort of been the story of my life. Almost all the major jobs I've had, people sought me out. I said no initially. They sort of kept after me, and then I did it, and it was fine. That's sort of my <laughs> way I go about that. Um, so, the inner astronauts, an amazing group of people to hang out with. Now, it, interesting contrast. Remember, I was talking about my early work life was with pregnant mothers and preschool children. And now I'm catapulted to the other end of the spectrum of working with seniors. Um, so then I find out they were just sort of big children and <laughs> <laughs> that, that much speciality was needed. I was concerned at being a yoga teacher and not being trained in, you know, specifically elders in, you know, harming people or hurting people, but somehow I lucked out that no one was ever injured or harmed in one of my classes. And once again, whatever I had to offer seemed to be greatly uh, received. And uh, during that time, just like with the Cancer Health Program, these people were just sort of more than just people I was working with. They sort of became friends and acquaintances for that time. Um, what else do I remember about the work with the elderly? Oh, well, that time, so I'm about 30 years younger than I am now. And so I was thinking, this is another reason not to get old. 
<laughs> Little to my surprise that I know that I reached that uh, threshold um, in surprising ways. Um, I certainly remember the differences seem to make in their lives also, yeah. very much in the cancer health program, uh, that just this attention and focus and kindness displayed toward them and education and support really seemed to uh, transform their lives in positive ways. And I often think of today uh, what happened to them and how did the rest of their lives unfold. We kept up with some of them uh, over the years after that, but I would suspect at this point, most of them have to be deceased, yeah, considering they were. I remember then. one woman in particular, a retired nurse, who is very kind of proper looking, uh, open eyed, vibrant person, who had turned her home into a place for people who were going through sex change surgeries to recover. And uh, so, did you know that? Or I don't remember that? that. Yes, I think her name. Well, or was I a resident? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I know this for a fact. I won't use her name because she might still be alive. But uh -huh. but the point I'm making is that these were interesting human beings. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say you're working with elders. It's another thing to say these are the actual human beings who show up, and and each one had their own story. But again, it turned out that elders weren't great to work with because although it made a big difference in their lives, it's an expensive process to put on week-long retreats of the intensity and care that we do. Um, and, uh, and elders in general couldn't afford it and they weren't in a place where they felt they needed it that much. So that was the point at which a long-time dream of mine uh, had been to work with cancer patients. And it had developed in 1982 when my dad got cancer. And then uh, uh, in 83 when I uh, met Satchidananda and got, had what was for me a really life-changing experience with integral yoga. And my father got a cancer diagnosis around the time that you Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so while we were all laid off from Commonwealth, that's when I met Rachel Naomi Remen when I was moonlighting for a, a dentist who uh, uh, was thinking of giving a lot of money to the University of California, San Francisco Medical School, and my mentor, Phil Lee, who was uh, the former chancellor of UCSF, asked if I would uh, interact with him so that UCSF could figure out what this guy who was very into uh, spiritual stuff was all about. And so I was working with him and Rachel was asked to consult with him. And Rachel and I met at a cafe uh, in San Francisco and started talking and, um, and never stopped, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, 30 years later. Um, but I told her of this idea of doing retreats for cancer patients, and she had a practice uh, counseling people with cancer and other diseases. And uh, she basically said, uh, let's try it. And I would never have had the courage to do this without Rachel. Mm -hmm. You know, my story is that 
every major thing I've done since I came to California uh, uh, at a really significant level. Uh, there was, uh, I found a woman who gave me the courage to actually do it. You know, uh, Carolyn Brown gave me the courage to start full circle with her, and then Carolyn and I and Burr Henneman started Commonweal together. And, you know, so I've always needed some dimension of feminine courage uh, to do stuff. So and that's why you wanted me around. That's absolutely <laughs> it. That's absolutely it. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, Rachel gave me the courage, but you were the partner who we actually, of course, Rachel was a partner too, but you were very central to the Cancer Help Program. So, I want to go to the Cancer Help Program. Um, you uh, coordinated it for probably 25 years, if it's 30 years. Arlene Alsman is coordinating it uh, now. Kate Holcomb coordinated it for a year or two, and then Arlene took that on. What has the Cancer Help Program been like in your life? What, what, how do you hold those many years? Because you continue to do the alumni work. So what, what, what has this experience, which has really been at the heart of Commonweal's work for 30 years, been like for you? Well, it's been big. Yeah. Uh, it takes up a lot of space, and that's not a criticism. It's just an awareness. Um, it was another one of those situations where you say, okay, you want to coordinate and be the yoga teacher in this cancer health program? And I'm thinking, I've never taught yoga to people with cancer, what I know about that. And you have to remember, this is like in the early 80s, so our relationship to cancer is much different than it was back then. It was maybe a more scary, unknown thing. Uh, certainly after being intimately involved with it for 30 years, that was very different. So I had reservations about that at that point, but again, it's like, well, Michael Wan and MacArthur, and he's asking me to do this, so of course, uh, I'm gonna do it, uh, not knowing, having, having no idea what it would grow into. Um, and again, so I start doing this maybe two years after I started teaching yoga, and also concerned about you know, people's well-being. And once again, I can also say after 25 years of teaching in the program, I don't think anybody was ever injured in the class. Um, and very quickly, I had some concerns because, you know, I was coming to it as a yoga teacher, and yet there was this whole field of what healing, you know, sort of coming up and coming into prominence. And... Um, So that was an interesting intersection. And then after doing the yoga for a period of time, it, it started happening that again, these people were not just students in my classes or at the retreats. These started people be people that I was talking to on the phone or seeing uh, outside of the uh, cancer health program to the point that at some point very quickly, all of my 
well, I would say almost all of my social connections were people who had been through this program. Uh, and it was another way to be useful in the world, mm-hmm. which is sort of, I spent my life trying to be useful and passing on information that seemed to be useful in people's lives. When I started doing the cancer retreats, I definitely had the question, when are you going to get your diagnosis? After a few years of doing the program, sitting there, you know, being immersed in this world, it's like, when are you going to get your own cancer diagnosis? Uh, which did happen about six years ago or seven years ago. So I think my diagnostic experience has certainly been colored by being in contact with so many people that had cancer over the years. So I don't know if it made my road any easier. It certainly gave me access to lots of information and resources and people to talk to. Um, People often ask, how can you work with people with cancer? Isn't it scary? Or why would you want to spend all your time with people with cancer? And that's something that's never even crossed my mind. Again, I don't see the cancer as the biggest part of them or something to be avoiding. It's just a part of them. And that's something I've always tried to uh, impart in my teaching is that the cancer or whatever the diagnosis is only a very small part of you. And there are other parts that are still functioning quite adequately. So uh, I'm just not relating to this person with cancer. I'm just relating to them as a human being. And I think that that's one of the qualities that allows me to do what I do. But there are people sitting in the room that certainly can talk about this more and differently than I can because we've done this dance together. Mm. So anyway, was I rambling? No, you're right on. But before your cancer diagnosis, you got another diagnosis. Ah, the HIV diagnosis. Okay, yeah, that story. Yeah, that happened about a year after the Cancer Health Program started. So this is 1986. Is that correct, Yanni? In 1986, the Cancer Health Program started in 1985. Okay, so I wasn't going to be the yoga teacher too long. Little did I know, once again, that was wrong. So, yes, so this can't, this HIV diagnosis drops into my life. I had the HIV test to have my negativity confirmed. <laughs> so that was sort of a surprise. I'm going to tell this little story because it's really one of the more interesting moments in my life. So I had the test done at a uh, public clinic in San Francisco, and so you go back to get your results. I'm in this room, and a young woman walks in. She's carrying these papers, and she's looking rather concerned, which I wasn't really paying attention to until after the uh, session. So she sits down, and she says, well, your results were positive. And there's a silence in the room. And then she says, you look surprised. <laughs> I said, yeah. And then there's another silence. She said, and then she says, you should get lots of exercise. <laughs> and, that was the, and then I walked out into the world uh, with an HIV positive diagnosis. And all around me, uh, men were dying. And I was going to be dead in a couple of months. And uh, is a couple of months over yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
Uh, but again, it wasn't really that big a deal in my life because there were all these other things going on simultaneously. And I wasn't sick. It would have been a very different course had I been sick. Actually, I didn't see a doctor until six years after my diagnosis uh, because at that time there was only uh, AZT as a treatment. And from what I knew about that, I didn't want to put that in my body and I wasn't sick. And so... Uh, and you also thought that you, that actually that you that you had contacted it long before you got the diagnosis, right? If I remember correctly. In other words, you didn't think this was a recent thing? Is that correct? I don't remember that part mm. of okay. it. Because also, how long is yeah. how long is it dormant before right. it shows up right. and right. what were the exactly. triggers? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know that. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, this was before effective treatments. Right. And so not only you, but all of us at Commonweal thought we were going to lose you. Yeah, but that was yeah, that was never talked about very much, and I always wonder how well, other certainly people were on carrying mind. that. Right. Yeah. I know it had to be yeah. because you're going to have to find another coordinator and <laughs> <Yeah>. yoga teacher. <laughs> As well as your friend, yeah. So that scenario never came down. So I have to. Jennifer's here, so I have to tell the interesting story of how I got to my first HIV doctor. So uh, Jennifer is the uh, director of the retreat center, and occasionally I know what's going on in the retreat center, but it's not my responsibility. It's Jennifer, and so at some point Jennifer says to me. Now, Waz, there's this interesting doctor. He's coming out here with uh, HIV patients and you know, having healing retreats for them. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Oh, she also said he's tall and thin, which Jennifer thinks I have a thing for tall, thin men, but actually I have a thing for all men. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so um, I heard it, but I didn't really act on it, and I think he was out here for a, another retreat, and Jennifer said the same thing, and by that time I was thinking, uh, maybe I should have an HIV doc, and so um, I, this is my memory, I called the office to get an appointment, and his practice was closed, he wasn't taking any more HIV patients. And this is the story I tell, is that I called Jennifer and said, call John Kaiser and tell him that if he wants to do any more retreats here, he has to see me as a patient. <laughs> Whether it happened that way or not, I did finally get in to see uh, him, and uh, I uh, was with him for uh, some years. So the HIV is always that shadow. Uh, it was kind of scary and... Um, just led to more uncertainty. But again, there were so many other things that were going on in my life uh, that I wasn't overwhelmed mm -hmm. by the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And actually didn't... I've never even known I had the illness except for the time that I went off of meds, which mm -hmm. was uh, prescribed at the time. So, yeah. Now, in addition to the Cancer Help Program... Um, there was a point at which I asked you if you would be general manager of Commonweal, which you did for a long time. Right. Um, I don't know what, but maybe 20 years or something like that. That was the time that I was leaving because I wanted more money, and you said if you want more money, you have to do more work. And that's right. General manager. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. That's that's how that came along. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So the general manager question, what was that? Well, what was it like? <laughs> well, you know, those of us who hang at Commonwealth, it's such an exceptional experience in our lives. I mean, I had many jobs before this, and supervision and coordinating is, was not a stranger to me. It's sort of what I've been doing most of my life in one way or the other. Um, but again, first of all, I'm just sort of amazed that you thought I could do it and asked me to do it. And then I sort of pulled it off with a certain amount of uh, grace. Um, I think probably it's not just me, it may probably is a more human normal trait that I'm always thinking that I'm going to be found out, you know, how little I know or how much I'm faking it, you know, because <laughs> I've been asked to do so many things here at Commonwealth I've never done before, and yet. There are these very intelligent people that have entrusted me with this work. Mm. And so I try to do my best, but it's sort of like, what, uh, you want me to coordinate the renovation of Heidendahl House? Uh, you, want me to, you want to coordinate the building of the sauna? You know, like I have any expertise in these things, but somehow I pull it off. So it's been a, uh, a very interesting experience. The other part I think about over the years, there have been so many people that have come and gone, mm -hmm. and I'm still here. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, one of the things I like about the work is there's a lot of variety. No mm -hmm. two days are the same. Uh, in those early days, uh, I remember I was fixing food for lunches for guests, uh, going to... Uh, juvenile justice facilities in California and looking around at those things. And uh, then I'm talking on the phone with someone with a cancer diagnosis. Then I'm talking to a plumber or a tree worker uh, or sitting in my office with some crying staff member. Uh, so it's just, it's just a world. And the fact that I pull this all off, it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, people on staff who needed to cry uh, knew they could come to you and find a trustworthy person who would listen and be discreet. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, there was a, a deep sense that people had of your commitment to fairness. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sure that... You know, obsessiveness with fairness is certainly colored by being, oh, does everybody in this room know that I'm black? <laughs> I ask that question because not everybody does. Not everybody yeah. assumes that. And I tell that story because two weeks ago there was an alum that came to visit. I yeah. don't even know if I told you this yeah. story. She, she had been here maybe how long ago? 2007. 2007. She spent a week with me. I probably talked with this woman probably 10 or 12 times after she left here. She came back to visit. She stopped by my house on her way out. She looks at a picture on my counter, my mother and my father. She turns around and she says, Waz, are you black? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I hope that's all right with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't assume that... Everybody knows. Is there, did everybody in this room not 
know that I was black? Never occurred to him. Never occurred to him. Never occurred to him. There you go. There you go. <laughs> You're being truthful. Right. Yeah. So, so that sort of staggers me because here's this person who's grown up in the world carrying this identity, whatever it is, mm -hmm. as black. And some people don't know I'm black. Mm -hmm. And what does it really mean anyway? Mm -hmm. um, That's also an interesting thing about Commonwealth. Stuff, racial stuff hardly ever comes up. It's never really talked about. And also, there have been very few black people connected with Commonwealth. So that's another thing. But I came here, my family asked me, why do you want to work around all those white people? <laughs> and I said, well, because I'm working around all those white people. It's not like I sought them out to escape Black people is just the way my life sort of unrolled. I mean, I didn't. But it, and then there's so much race consciousness in the country now. Uh, after that experience with the participant, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of myself as a black person. Mm -hmm. And I asked my partner, Victor, who is white, I said, do you think about being white every day? He said, it hardly ever crosses my mind. Mm -hmm. And there's not a day that I go by not thinking that I'm black, not <coughs> negative or positive, just as that awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm thinking that, and then other people don't even know I'm black. So mixed up, shook up world, interesting. Well, I think one of your qualities um, has been that from a very early age, you felt different from other people. But I was told that probably before I was aware of okay. feeling it. But I mean, when it's a, it's a, at least, it's a repeated theme mm -hmm. uh, that, I don't know if the right language, but it, 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 sometimes I, I sense that you feel like you're from another planet. <laughs> Brother from another planet. Right, right. Is that a, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is, oh, is, sure. is it another, is the sense that you're just like quite different? Yes. Yeah. That's I'm sure there are people similar to me on the planet. Right. I just haven't met them yet. Right. And if you're around, please come and introduce yourself to me. Uh, and again, it's not a bad or good thing or wanting to, wanting to be different. It's just that that information has come to me very early before I started really finding it out myself. And, and those ha things had to do with uh, non-attachment, for example, and uh -huh. some of the other qualities that you've talked about. Uh -huh. Non-attachment, kindness... Low anxiety. Uh, low anxiety. Right. Fairness, coolness. Coolness. Fairness. fairness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. How am I doing, Jennifer? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So another theme in your life is art. You are, um, I asked you, I, I said to you, I thought you probably didn't want to bring some of your art to the program, but... Uh, you, particularly since you've stepped back from Commonweal and are working less, uh, one of the things you always wanted to do is devote more time to your art. Could you talk a little about your art? Mm -hmm. 
okay, I'm an artsy kind of guy, always have been. Um, it's always been a part of my life, either active or inactive. Uh, actually, my uh, bachelor's degree is in fine arts and education. And uh, probably when I was in college, I was thinking I was going to be a college professor at some you know, quiet Midwestern college doing my own work, having a little devoted band of students. So I just moved. In, for, in art? In art, yes. So I just moved it further west and settled here at Commonwealth, and I just changed the medium. Mm -hmm. I see my life as art, mm -hmm. my art. Mm -hmm. um, so in college, I was going to be a painter or a potter. That's sort of what I concentrated on. After I got out of college, it sort of went a different way. Well, because I had... I. Uh, when I graduated from college, I was either going to get drafted and have to go to Vietnam or take a teaching job in Cleveland at an inner city school. So that's what got me out of the draft. And uh, so, Where did you go to college? Okay, undergraduate school, I went to Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky. <laughs> and uh, graduate school, I went to Case Western in University in Cleveland. Yeah. And those were like 10 years apart. I worked for 10 years and then went back and got my master's. And from the point of view of your family, were these educational achievements that were uh, unusual in your family? Yes, I was the first person to graduate from a four-year college and nobody else in the family has an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Although I do have a nephew who has also graduated from college, so now there are two college graduates mm -hmm. in the family. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in your family and in your community of origin, you were already uh, reaching levels of education and management stuff and so forth quite early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my experience has been that you kind of float to the top of anything that you get involved with without uh, necessarily wanting to float there, but it just kind of happens. You both bagged it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I am a floater. Right. Actually, I don't think there's any organization I've been involved with that I didn't wind up being the president or the chairman or... Mm -hmm the captain or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I never go into these things wanting that or even mm -hmm. feeling that I could do it, but somehow the energy just mm -hmm. takes me in that direction. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. elementary school, high school, college. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. He's just a born leader, natural born leader. It must be. Well, I mean, also in the Cancer Help Program, my experience of what you did, it was like you were... Uh, the minister of a flock. It was like you. It was like a ministerial function that you did, um, and it was like not only did you co-lead the uh, coordinate the cancer help program and teach the yoga, but you just would call people. They'd come to your mind. You'd call them. Uh, even now, you're mm -hmm. doing these pop-up dinners in different parts of the Bay Area where you let. Alumni know, or how do you do the pop-ups? Yeah, I just, we sit on an email and say, you know, Victor and I are going to be at some restaurant at some particular time. Right. 
let us know how many to reserve the table for. Right. Yeah. So there, there's, there, there has been, I mean, now since you've stopped back from coordinating it, it's not as intimate a relationship right. with the alumni as you had. But there, there was, when you were coordinating it, you know, you just were on the phone with people mm-hmm. all the time. And to this day, you are the person that people call when they're interested in the right. Cancer Help Program. Right. Um, so I've heard that conversation about 2,000 times since right. 1985. And you also often had a sense when uh, people were dying or, you know, just synergistically you would call people or they'd be at some turning point. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about that? Right. Again, that doesn't happen so much now because I don't have the contact with yeah. participants. So that was when, when I was teaching yoga, okay, so I had had several conversations with people before they got to their program. When they came for a retreat, we were together many hours every day. Mm-hmm. And then afterward, we would talk. So a lot of these people became very big presence in my life. Mm-hmm. And more times than not, it was just really interesting that I would be thinking about someone and just call them and either they were actively in the process of dying or had just died and I hit this thing about, oh, I should contact that person. I don't even speculate what that is because I have no way of knowing it, but it happened enough times for it to be striking. And since I stopped teaching, I haven't had that awareness with people that have come to retreats since then. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. You're listening to Michael Lerner and Waz Thomas. So let's tell the story, if you remember it, I remember it, but I, I think you will, of, uh, of Keith and Deb Smith. Right. Um, because this is quite a story. So Keith and Deb were this young couple from New Jersey, and um, she was a banker, and he was an artist, and they came on the Cancer Help Program. And she had a really serious diagnosis. I think it was leukemia that... Um, uh, she had already outlived her uh, diagnosis. And they were carrying this theory that they had to keep a positive attitude all the time. And so they'd never allowed themselves before the Cancer Help Program to grieve the fact that she was probably going to die. And uh, so uh, they had a great time in the Cancer Help Program. And then some months later, she was in the hospital in New York, and I went back and I saw her in uh, the hospital, and she was real sick. And I said to her, uh, you, know, you know, Deb, it is totally not okay with me that you're dying, but if you die and you're able to, please let me know that you're okay, because it would help me in the work to be able to tell people that, it was possible to be okay on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. So she said she would do what she could. So um, uh, some months after that, we were doing a cancer help program. This was early on because Yanni was giving me a massage up in this office right here. Yeah, Yanni Chapman. Uh, and, um, and it was just the the Sunday night of a cancer help program. Oh, no, the, it was Monday afternoon when the cancer help program starts. 
And I said to Yanni, I don't know what's going on, but the place feels filled with light, and maybe it's this group coming in or something. And, um, and so we went down for the evening program, and uh, just around then, you came down from the office with a fax that uh, Deb had just died. And so that was the precursor and then I went off to Europe to look at alternative cancer therapy centers, which I was traveling and doing that at that point. And one night, you were driving home and you pulled up in your truck in front of your house. And what happened? <laughs> Boy, your memory is astonishing. Uh, so telling that story. Okay, so I pull up in front of the house, and I'm sitting there, and again, this voice, this presence, this awareness that's been with me all my life sort of shows up and says... We have to preface this. Keith was an artist, and after his wife died, mm -hmm. he stopped his artwork. Yeah. Right. So this presence, this voice came to me and said... It was Deborah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So came back in the sort of the persona of the deceased wife, and yeah. I was to deliver a message to Keith. I was to tell Keith that he should start painting again and that she was going to be with him in his paintings. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, now, is this a message I want to deliver? Then it became, yes, it's the message I want to deliver. And so uh, I called and told Keith about this. And then Keith's artwork sort of started flooding out in things that he had never done before. And he was aware of his wife's presence in his painting. And a lot of the things that he did symbolically represented things of pieces of her life, of her. So... You're telling the story because what was that presence that brought that message to me? What was that? I'm not even going to speculate on what that is, but you probably will. Well, <laughs> I don't know that I need to speculate yeah. about it. What the, the additional detail that I remember is that Deb's voice said to you, uh, uh, was I can't find Michael because I was in Europe. Right, right. I right, can't right, find right. Michael. And so please deliver this message to Keith. Right. So you deliver the message to Keith, and then either you discover or I later discover that Keith had been having these extraordinary experiences of uh, dreams in which he would find himself with Deb in a kind of a hotel room, and he'd said to her, are you okay? And she said, sort of like, I think so. You know, kind of, I'm getting used to it, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And he said, can I come be with you? And she said, no. Mm -hmm. And then she would disappear, you know. And then he would have experiences like a dream. I mean, this sounds incredible, but he would, Deb, he'd be in a dream, and Deb would say to him, wake up and turn on the television. Mm -hmm. And he'd turn on the television and Joseph Campbell would be talking about death and dying. You know, it was like these, I'm just 
reporting. I'm not speculating. Yeah, I'm just reporting yeah, yeah, yeah. on what happened. And so then when Keith had finished the paintings, he brought his art out here. And we had an exhibit upstairs in the gallery of Keith's paintings of his whole process of Deb's death and his mourning and her rebirth. And he brought her ashes out along with a little wooden, beautiful wooden table, which sat in my office for a long time, like a, a desk. And Keith and I waded out into the Pacific and scattered Deb's ashes in the Pacific. And I mean, I guess I tell the story uh, partly because you played such a central role in it, but partly because this is the relationship that we have with people in the cancer help program. There's nothing artificial or cut and dried or anything like that. And, you know, some people sort of drift away, and that's totally fine, and other people stay close in different ways. But it's a relationship of love that is authentic and human and personal. You know, it isn't some kind of abstraction. Um, you know, we have an alum right now, uh, well, we just had an alum who died, a very beautiful alum, and another who is dying, and we're just often part of these processes, you know? So when you said the Cancer Help Program has been a big experience, it's been, for me, the formative experience of 30 years, you mm -hmm. know? the formative experience of 30 years. How do you define formative? I, I've found myself as a soul in the cancer help program, you know, more than anything else, you know, for me. Yeah. You wouldn't say that because you found yourself as a soul at the age of three. <laughs> well, well, no, I, just, I, don't, I don't have a... I don't. I can't do too much with the concept of soul. I have right. no. I don't. I don't know what that means. Well, it's a metaphor. Yeah, I know. I, but I, what I mean is that. Um, what I mean. I what. I, what I would say is. You know. You know. I'm interested in enneagram. Yes. And so I think of things in terms of yes. archetypal psychology. And I'm a five on the Enneagram. And five on the Enneagram is the true loner, very introverted, actually also very non-attached, specializes in non-attachment. Uh, uh, so, you know, I sometimes, I mean, you say you're a 12. But I'm not a five. Right, right. But we don't know what you are. But actually, how difficult it is to figure out what you are on the Enneagram is characteristic of your whole life. Right, you know? right, 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 right. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very introverted. I mean, I can be out in public, but I'm very introverted and very, um, you know, Mental. But when you say introverted, does that does that mean that you like you like being by yourself and comfortable being by yourself and spending lots of time together by yourself as well as engaging with other people? Yeah, we're all some combination of yeah, introverted. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, yeah, I'm extremely introverted. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I choose to spend most of my non-work time by myself. I know. Yeah, and yeah. so do I. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Um, so soul to me is a metaphor, but what it, I guess, I don't know, my experience of the Cancer Help Program, because everybody, I mean, Commonwealth has 16 different programs, so people have many, you know, 
if you're David Steinhardt, it's juvenile justice. And if you're Rebecca Katz, it's healing kitchens. And, you know, whatever it is, um, that's your piece and it's very central. So for me, uh, the Cancer Help Program has been fundamentally central. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that the generosity of the alumni of the Cancer Help Program, which is a tiny group of people. I mean, we only graduate uh, uh, 48 people a year, you know, right. six retreats, eight people a year. But that generosity has made all of Commonweal possible. It's not just the Cancer Help Program. Mm -hmm. It's been the core glue of Commonweal. And, and so, um, and I don't think that's any accident. It's because the Cancer Help Program changes lives and it's changed my life along with everybody else. You know, you can't do this for 30 years and really let it touch you without, uh, not, I can't, it, you can do it, but I can't do it for 30 years without being changed by it, you know. So that's my experience. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna open I, it up. I think I've been changed by it. I just not clear on how to Describe. express it or know yeah. how. It, I mean, it's subtle over time. Yeah. I don't. I can't think of any large dramatic ways. I mean, yeah. I just sort of show up and be me, and then no matter where I am, whether yeah. it's the cancer help program or talking to Ian or mm -hmm. in my relationships, I just sort of show up and be what yeah. I am in the yeah. situation, and things happen. So. That didn't mean anything. Jennifer Stoll, you've been part hey, of the Jeff. Cancer Help Program for a long time, worked with Waz for a long time as the director of the Retreat Center. As you listen to this conversation, what comes to you? This is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in wonder of the way that history has shape-shifted over the years to become this version of itself. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes <laughs> and yes. it's wonderful, and it's true, anyway. Um, I just, it's very touching and wonderful to see you two talk together about this mm -hmm. enormous thing, attached or unattached, the co-creation of the Cancer Health Program in Colorado. And Waz, I, I am drawn to ask you also about your name and the name changes over the years. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a great subject. Okay. The name game. Okay. So I've had five first names in my 72 years. Uh, the five were Richard, Blackie with a Y, Rain Blaze, Ashoka, and Waz. So Richard was what my parents came up with. I was named after my mother's brother, uh, Blackie. No, Rain Blaze came first. This is a story I tell and I've told it for many, many years. And about four years ago, I thought, when did that ever happen? Mm -hmm. So this is the story I've told for many years. Back during hippiedom, I was running around with some people and we gave each other tribal names. And my name became Rainblaze. But now when I think back, I can remember none of those people or how that situation came up if it did. And so I'm thinking, did I make that story up, but why did I start telling it? And this is about how history, you know, and then why did I make it up? Why did I start telling it? Did it ever happen? So 
<laughs> Several months ago, I'm looking through an old box of letters and postcards, and here are postcards addressed to Rainblaze. <laughs> so it must have happened, although I have no memory of how. Okay, Blackie, for a period of time when I was working in San Francisco, I was working for the, uh, when I was living in San Francisco, I was working for the Sierra Club Foundation. Mm -hmm. There were two Richards there. Uh, we would often get each other's telephone calls mixed up when they were transferring calls. One day, Richard walked in wearing a pair of pink pants and a pink shirt. And this voice in my head said, okay, you're pink, you're Richard the pink, and I'm blacky with a Y. So I went by probably that for a while. And then, uh, let's see, Ashoka is my yoga name, supposedly given to me by Swami Satchitananda. I got that at the end of teacher training with Michael Lerner. I've been involved in the organization for three years, and in the organization, if you want a yoga name, you have to ask for one. And of course, I don't need to ask for a yoga name. Once I have her, fine. For some reason, at the end of the yoga training, I said, well, you've gone this far, you might as well get a yoga name. So the name I got was Ashoka. The night that I got the name, I was told that Ashoka meant without worry, sorrow, or fear, mm -hmm. nor causing those qualities in others. Mm -hmm. Could you without, say that again? Without worry, sorrow, or fear, nor causing those qualities in others. Mm -hmm. And I say, wow. How did I get that label? Supposedly from a man who really didn't know who I was, and out of all the yoga names I could have gotten, I could have gotten that one, which was just what my whole life was about. And that was another confirmation. You know, instead of talking about transforming experiences, I talk more about confirmation experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, so, well, if this cool man could give me that name. That's interesting. So I went by Ashoka for about 15 years. Okay, Waz. Mm, how many rockers we got in the group? Uh, Manfred Mann. Manfred Mann did an album called Out of Africa. It was Manfred Mann, hey, <laughs> and some of his, some African chants and stuff. And some, I was listening to it with my friend Corbin, who I'd met at the Integral Yoga Institute. And after we thought that they were chanting something like Wazulu or Kwazulu. After that, Corbin would call me Wazi Guy or Wazulu. It was just something between us for a month or so. It fell away for years. And then at some point, I was in my vehicle driving around the Bolinas Lagoon, and that voice showed up and said, you're wise now. And I said, what? That you're wise now. I said, okay. And then I started telling everybody to call me Waz. I've told that story at retreats for years, and I think two people changed their names while they were at the retreat. <laughs> and continued having the change after they left. So if you're not happy with your handle, just change it. And, and I never change it legally, uh, and I never change my last name, so it's really easy to do. But on my checks, it says Richard Thomas, a.k.a. Waz. So that's the name game. I make no guarantee what my name will be when we next meet. <laughs> Thanks for asking about the name game. Yanni Chapman, you've worked with Waz for a long time. What are your reflections as you listen to this? Uh, so I will say one quick thing, which is that in those days of Waz as the, the coordinator for the Cancer Hub Program, many of us on staff who have little pieces of the program that we do 
with loved was as as our boss. Mm-hmm. And so when I wanted to talk about what makes that so good, I would say Waz is the perfect umbrella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he protects whether there's too much heat or light or sun or pouring down rain coming from the top. He protects us from mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, he's paying attention to what everybody's doing so you feel cared for. Mm-hmm. There's the, he would put on an apron and dash into the kitchen if someone mm-hmm. was sick. He would... Uh, you know, do any one of the jobs at any level of the place and completely honor and validate the people in those roles. Hmm. So that's, uh, many of us used to joke, if Waz ever leaves, we're being <laughs> Thanks, Jody. I'd love to open it up to any alumni of the Cancer Help Program who've had experiences with Waz. <laughs> or anybody. Like. Well, I want to start okay. with alumni. Okay. Hold on just a second, Patricia. Alumni, anybody want to? Or yes, questions? Julie. Yeah. Or yeah. Thank you so much. I'm Name just, again? I'm Julie. All oh, right. Okay. And I've been to the Cancer Help Program twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am just very grateful to hear your conversation. Um, I'm learning a lot, but I'm just deeply touched by, mm-hmm. by all of the um, sharing of information. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I do remember, I, as you started the meditation this morning, I just remember being in here my first time, being in this room, listening to some of the words you, you would say as we were in meditation, and something I'll never forget that I always share with so many people is what you said one day. It was so profound that about forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is letting go of all hope of a better past. I was quoting. Uh, Yes. Yes. But, however, you gave me that message. uh, Say that once again. Say it again. Forgiveness, as I remember it, is letting go of all hope of a better past. Yeah. And at that time, there was something that I was chewing on <laughs> if I could possibly forgive. So that was very important to me. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Anybody else from the alumni? Jackie? Just wanted to say that, you know, I'm, when I was doing the phone interview, I was kind of scared about what questions I would be asked or if I would get into the program or whatever. And was just... That's the first time I was introduced to you just with your voice right. and how you, the low-key, putting me at ease. <clears throat> and um, it just felt so good and, and loved and accepted right from the very beginning before I even came to the program. You weren't part of the, the week as far as doing yoga or anything when I was here, but subsequently with the alumni, it's been a tremendous support mm-hmm. for me and our group and just the kinds of things that you email uh, or the right words at the right time. So, thank you. <laughs> and Jackie, thank you. You, you did thank such you. a thank great you. thing uh, recreating the East Bay Alumni Support Group. It's been a tremendous contribution. So. You mentioned the first telephone call. In my world, the retreat starts with the telephone call, not when you get here. Mm-hmm. That whatever that is that's going to happen in that week, starts on the phone. And I think a lot of people pick that up. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, I want to open uh, it up. Whoever I think, wants to. Uh, yeah. Here? You yeah. had a 
I just wanted to share, uh, I think it was pretty early on in the, our retreat that you uh, said, drop the dysfunctional drama. And there, you know, a lot of things go through my mind from that retreat, but that one is so helpful, you know, in managing what's going on up here. <laughs> so uh, that, and of course, the unconditional love that I experienced that whole week, uh, I had never, ever experienced that before. And I think I can thank both of you because my experience with organizations is it starts at the top. Mm. You know, and builders down. So thank you. Mm. Yeah. That was my uh, mantra that I talked about a lot while I was teaching the DDD, drop the dysfunctional drama. But when I was teaching, there was a whole talk centered around that, just not dropping that out. But uh, that is something mm. that I have tried to do in my own life, and I lay it out as a possibility for mm. other people. Mm. Yes, Patricia. I just wanted to tag on uh, something about wise, uh, loving kindness. I used to work for Commonwealth for Rachel Redmond, and we did uh, trainings for, for doctors. And at uh, one of those trainings, I worked with Kate Holcomb, uh, who was a yoga teacher. And so I said, well, Kate, you know, um, what would you like for me to do? And she said, I want to show you something very, very special that, you know, we do for the for people who, in the end, who are laying down, you know, resting, doing yoga. And she showed me how to put a blanket on and tuck the person's feet in, you know, on the bottom to, you know, sort of a last minute comfort. And she said, and we call that the Ashoka tuck. <laughs> uh, that gets commented on quite frequently, yeah. I do explain that a little bit more. At the end of the yoga class, there's a deep relaxation, and uh, some teachers do it. I don't even know why I started doing it. I certainly wasn't taught to do it. Covering the people up with the blanket so they're lying on the floor, don't want them to get cool, and it's just comforting having the weight of the blanket on. And there's a way that I sort of tuck the person in, they became known as the Waz tuck or the Ashoka tuck, right? yeah, yeah. And many people have commented upon that very simple gesture of being tucked in. Yeah. Yes? I, it is appropriate, you mentioned the DDT or whatever you said, would you explain that? Oh, uh, DDT, the drop, the dysfunctional drama. Okay, so, hmm, how can, what can I say about that? Okay, this is in the context of sort of healing and help people living lives of greater peace and ease. And being a sort of less dramatic person in my own way, um, <laughs> when I look out at other people, I just see that so much unhappiness or suffering is generated by just this, in my point of view, sort of this constant, incessant drama or over-dramatization or awfulizing our lives and our situations. That's a good word, awfulizing. And to the degree that we can, through whatever skills or healing we can accomplish, one of the ways toward that more peaceful, easy, easeful way of being is sort of to minimize, decrease, lower the dysfunctional drama. Yeah, so that's what that comes from. Yeah. All right. 
from thinking about the two of you talking today was kind of expecting or not expecting or not knowing where it's going to go. Um, but seeing, sitting here thinking about what Commonweal is, and it kind of lives in that space between you. I mean, it's mm-hmm. funny that you were born a few days across, you know, black and white in more than just the racial sense. Mm-hmm. But starting at that soul place, and you both went in different directions, yeah. and, you mm-hmm. know, working with, well, more with Michael since you kind of kind of retired since mm-hmm. I got here. But um, you kind of represented the different sides of, of mm-hmm. Commonweal. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> the, the Cancer Health Program and a lot of the programs. I mean, it's you and Jennifer and probably Rachel and a few other people that have been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it creates this kind of plane that allows a lot of mm-hmm. us to exist now. Mm-hmm. In some ways, very soul on the other side, very mm-hmm. pra- pragmatic. And they don't contradict each other, but mm-hmm. it kind of represents both of you here. Yeah. And one of the things, certainly, that Michael and I probably disagree about lots of things. Uh, but I never have the feeling that Michael's right and I'm wrong or I'm wrong and Michael's right. There are just many ways of seeing any issue. And so uh, I just support Michael trusting that what he is saying and what he's doing is useful and practical. And I can see it completely different, but I don't have the need to rush in mm-hmm. and try to change him. Over the years, I've gone to Michael and say, I don't think this is a very good idea, but if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. And sometimes he goes ahead and do it, and then I'm completely supportive. And other times he said, oh, yeah, that's right, let's not do it. And so we've had a, an amazingly good working relationship. Mm-hmm. And also I think that people may think that we probably spend more time together and talk more. In the early years, we talked a lot, mm-hmm. mainly about Commonwealth as it was growing. But as more people came on, mm-hmm. divvying up the pie, uh, our conversations about management and direction and stuff sort of diminished. Uh, but I've just looked at Michael with sort of amazement for 32 years, watching him wheel and deal in the mm-hmm. world. and. It, uh, okay, I'll lay. That's in a transformative experience. That's my transformative experience <laughs> watching you wheel and deal all of these years, with just in so many different situations. And one of the things that uh, I've always loved about you is your ability to speak extemporaneously the way that you do. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's been a really amazing relationship. That we're very quiet with each other, but there's a deep love and respect there. That yeah. truly is. Yeah. And you're, um, so something very interesting about you is that you kind of appear to people as this kind of out there sort of presence, but there's a part of you that is deeply conservative in terms of, in other words, when we were uh, meeting together in the administrative groups or whatever, you were often the voice of caution. Mm. You were often the one that says, exactly how is that going to work? <laughs> how do you actually see that working? And, and so you would bring a caution to it that was tremendously useful because it forced me to actually articulate what I thought was going to happen. And you're absolutely right that sometimes your caution uh, made me uh, recognize that this idea was not 
fully cooked yet, you know? <laughs> or maybe it was even just a bad idea, mm-hmm. you know? So that was... Mimi Mandel, you uh, have a long history of friendship with Waz. And as you listen to this as a member of the staff, what are your reflections? I guess I'd say that he's been the transformative experience for me mm-hmm. <laughs> after all these years. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just wonder, wonder, wonder what it's all about. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love hanging out with him. <laughs> when I was teaching, Mimi has probably been to more of my yoga classes than any other human being on the planet. <clears throat> because she was, you know, for years she was coming to... Tw- you know, eight yoga classes a week for six weeks. So she saw my transitions and my changes and what I did in the yoga classes. So uh, thanks for hanging out all that time. Mm. Yeah. Any other questions before we do a last piece here? Can I just add one more piece? Yeah. Both of you were a little bit subdued in the Keith and Debbie story. And, and having been the early years who were one of the first person that while you were still gone that mm. Waz shared it with mm. I want to tell you that what Waz saw was Debbie sitting beside him and that's the way he described it later he talked about her hearing her voice but it was that, that quality that I think continues to this day from the way I hear it from people who still just meet you as the alumni coordinator there is a way in which you walk in worlds that you may not even have a structure formulated about, but that being able to travel in those worlds is what gives me that joy in being with you. <laughs> and, I, and I just think that that's profound, that, that Deb was able to find you through mm-hmm. Waz, Michael, in mm-hmm. a time of yeah. big need, yeah. and that when Keith came and gave his presentation, his pictures had Deb in them as a source of light in one picture, mm-hmm. as the invisible uh, body in the bed of flowers in the other pictures, and that that is at the core. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just had to say. Well, Waz, I have to say for me that this friendship and partnership. Um, and the sense of being twins separated at birth, um, which is, you know, funny at one level, but a deep metaphor at another level for um, one of the most absolutely profound central partnerships of my life. And um, when Mimi said her friendship with you was transformational, um, again, I just, um, I can't imagine Commonweal without you. And um, you came here when the place was absolutely empty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, we rebuilt it together. Mm-hmm. And um, if you had not been here, it would be a very different place. And um, so my basic response uh, is just gratitude, okay. you know. Mm-hmm. It's just gratitude that we're still both here. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I know that uh, you have a very different 
orientation to death than I do. Um, you're, you kind of often say, when do I get to get out of here kind of thing. Why am I still here? Yeah. <laughs> and I want to live to be 100 Right, right, and right. I want many more years of the work. But uh, I do hope you hang around for uh, some time to come, both uh, physically and in every other way. Yes, yeah, so you, you put me in an awkward situation because you want to be here to be 108, and it would be so cool to see you at 108. But for me, I, that means I have to hang around 108, and I have no interest in doing that. But we'll see what happens we'll first. Happens. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, bless you and gratitude. Thanks for this. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Yeah. And thank all of you. You know, uh, I couldn't have done this without all the people in this room and all the people who are not in this room. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've just really always been struck by people's uh, faith and uh, trust and absolute uh, love for me. Mm -hmm. I often tell people that I, uh, my life has been uh, swimming in a sea of love. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've had difficulties and hard times in my life, but I've never doubted that there were a lot of people that cared for me and really loved me, and that's been uh, significant because I don't see that showered so much upon other people, and so that's always been a, that's been a slow, slight guilt thing in my life is why I get so much and other people get so little, and that's another reason I try to give it equally to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so just thank you all for uh, all your love. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, it may not be transformative, but it is sustaining and mm -hmm. appreciated and felt. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just thanks to all of you for coming. It's been yeah. beautiful while. Yeah. So, um, what and, a joy. And you should know we did not discuss this at all before we sat down here today. <laughs> uh, so it was a revelation of what was going to happen. And right. this is the longest conversation that Michael and I have probably ever had in 32 years. So <laughs> thanks for coming along and witness it. <laughs> You've been listening to Michael Lerner and Waz Thomas. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit tns.commonweal.org for more podcast episodes and information on future events. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>